Hello, and welcome to Learning from Nature, the biomimicry podcast with Lily Ehrman. That's me. I'm publishing this episode on the first day of autumn, and I can almost smell the apple pies, the pumpkin spice, and the fresh fall air. As we embrace the new season, it's an opportunity to witness the leaves changing color, the migrations, and all the magical transformations that take place. It's the time for release and rest. And if you need some good brain food to listen to as you walk beneath the trees or sit on the couch, this episode is for you. We will get into why mucus and the microbiome is amazing, examples of companies that are learning from these strategies in nature, the power of the beginner's mindset, biotilization versus biomimicry, curiosity-driven learning, and how biomimicry enables learning and application from our wonder. My guest, Erin Miller, is a consultant in the field of microbiome research and development with a specialization in translational microbial therapeutics. Holding a degree in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology from UC Santa Barbara, her research journey has covered a broad spectrum from viral gene therapy vector design to crafting microbiome-centered solutions for both human and planetary health. Collaborating with international experts, she is actively involved in advancing microbial applications that address ecological challenges, such as ocean acidification and sustainable space travel, as well as human health issues. Erin's recent work also includes exploring the potential of microbial biomimicry to provide innovative solutions to complex ecological problems. With a deep-rooted fascination for nature's intricate organisms, she looks forward to further contributing to the ever-expanding scope of biomimicry in science. A side note, apologies if my voice sounds different or weird. I was recovering from a cold and, ironically, dealing with a lot of congestion, aka mucus. Let's dive on in. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Erin uh, Miller, uh, she, her. I would say, let's see, I've, I've just kind of shifted into a consulting role. So in general, I would say research and development specialist in the kind of microbial biotechnology field, um, if, you know, if I can make up my own title here <laughs> as it is. That's amazing. And what has been your background or pathway to this field? Yeah, I mean, I've been working in microbial biotechnology for a long time. So since in, in undergrad uh, at UC Santa Barbara, I was working in a lab doing uh, nucleic acid-based biosensors for to detect things like antibiotics and, and others. And then from there, out of college, moved into working at City of Hope Cancer Center and was working with adeno-associated viruses and, and modifying them so that we could change their tropism and change and shift where they go within the body and and so send them to different tissues so that we could deliver different gene therapy. Uh, so using them as vectors to deliver gene therapies. Um, and then from there moved into industry and have been working or was working on preservation and delivery of microbial therapeutics. So uh, a technology that's similar to freeze drying for you know keeping microbes in the dry state and then also uh, needle-free delivery devices so polymeric delivery or intranasal delivery of vaccines or other microbes and I think that's actually where I picked up this interest in mucus uh, because if you're if you're able to deliver vaccines directly to a mucosal membrane you're able to induce the immunity at that surface and so that was always very intriguing to me as, as an alternative um, area. And then just most recently was working uh, in research and development 
at Seed Health, um, where it's a microbial sciences company working on microbial therapeutics as well as probiotics and symbiotics, and working in the area of both human and environmental microbiomes, so human and planetary health, and was helping to manage our Seed Labs division, where we were working on probiotics for bees, probiotics for corals, uh, investigating microbes to degrade, degrade plastic and capture CO2 for, for, for climate impacts. And I think a lot of what I really enjoyed at Seed and, and part of their ethos is this ability to live curiously and live scientifically and, and, you know, bringing people, meeting people where they're at scientifically and not, you know, not keeping it, it in the lab is, is, you know, science is everywhere and, and you can show up and live scientifically and just have this amazement and, and especially the small things around us. Uh, and, and a lot of it was science communication as well. They really strongly believe the science isn't done until it's communicated and a strong ethos of translating with beauty and awe and bringing people into, you know, communicating science via that lens. So I, I really appreciated that uh, during my work with Seed. And now just kind of consulting and advising both with Seed, but also with um, various microbial sciences companies. And, and from that lens, getting into biomimicry as well. I'm, I'm working on applying to the master's for, um, for next year at ASU and so interested in seeing how I can apply biomimicry to this world of biotechnology that I've been working in. And I love that it allows me to work in a space of inspiration as opposed to bio-utilization. You know, moving past this, the limitations of using the microbes themselves or the biological entities themselves to being inspired by the processes and the formats and the functions that they're bringing to the world and applying that to all of these other spaces. Um, and so while I've been working in translational biotechnology and, and learning and creating for the purpose of application, again, that biotechnology for biotechnology for I'm looking forward to expanding to that area of inspiration and being able to zoom out a little bit from what I've been working on. I appreciate so much that uh, science enables me to find answers to that to the wonder I've always, you know, I think we've always had since kids and um, being inspired by biomimicry as a means to translate that more broadly and decouple the solutions from the physical utilization to a more figurative space. Hmm. Wow. There's so many things I want to dive into. Yeah. <laughs> you just mentioned, but I think a good place to start and I'll just have you maybe use your kind of own um, definitions and share your own definitions of biotechnology and biotechnology versus biomimicry. I, I, uh, a long time ago, I think in my first or second episode of this podcast kind of provided a little bit of background into those fields, but I do think they can become closely linked with biomimicry incorrectly a lot of the time. And so I like to just, let's just provide the definition kind of right off the bat, how you see it and how you define biotechnology, biotechnology, or bioassistance, if that's included, um, as opposed to biomimicry? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. That's, that's actually a good question. I mean, I, like I said, I think the biotechnology is, or I guess biotechnology is the exploitation of biological processes for, for industrial purposes. Mm -hmm. So creating technology based on biology. And, and in my experience, this has been, well, how do we use this virus to de deliver something? Or how do I deliver this microbe for a, a certain specific outcome? Um, whereas I would say the biomimicry overlay is more 
understanding, you know, getting that in-depth understanding of what these microbes are and the processes and the things that they enable um, us to do and translating those systems or those knowledges and processes to, you know, other technologies or other solutions. And so it's difficult when you're working with microbes, you inherently have to work on the micro, the micro scale. But if I can take things that we're learning on a micro scale and translate them to the macro, uh, I think that there's a lot more potential there. And, and I want to add that I, part of what I'm really trying to get into in, in, in biomimicry is microbial biomimicry. So Mm -hmm. how do I find inspiration from microbes, which are, you know, are, the oldest organisms on earth and arguably the most successful and you know, what can I learn from them? But then also how can I apply life's principles to work more cooperatively with, with microbes, which are around us all the time. Yeah, that's a really cool angle. So it's not only learning from the microbes and the strategies that they have and the functions that they're performing, but working alongside them with Mm -hmm. that knowledge. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I, I think we, uh, are you know the the area of the microbiome is a relatively new field and it's the one that I've been working in the longest and it's enabled me to just have a better understanding of this concept of us as an individual organism and think about like well when you're eating you're eating for these trillions of microbes mm-hmm. that are within you and they have all these critical health functions um, so so I appreciate just the that concept and thinking about biomimicry of our microbiome or biomimicry to support our microbiome um, and thinking about what, you know, what are the the things that have made microbes so successful throughout all of evolution. So I want to have you dive deeper into the microbiome, but I think it might actually be helpful to first have you dive deeper into this um, idea of like, what is mucus and why is mucus important? Because you mentioned that in your introduction as well. Um, and that's initially where I was like, oh my God, I need to talk to Aaron about mucus <laughs> when I reached out, but they are very intricately linked. And so I'd like to have you, or at least from my perspective, I could be totally wrong about that. Um, Cause I don't know, I don't know a lot about mucus or the microbiome. So does it make sense to start with mucus? You know, I actually, I think because I, I want to set the, the frame of wh- why I think mucus is important for the microbiome and for microbes, I think I'm actually going to back it up and talk about just a, a framework of what microbiome is in general. Great. That's okay. That sounds great. Yeah. So I, I feel that there's a lot of misconception about you know the microbiome. Oh, what is the microbiome? It's obviously very buzzworthy right now. And there's a common misconception that it's one thing and that it's bacteria and it's gut health. Right. Mm-hmm. But in general, the microbiome is a community of microbes and their genes that inhabit a defined environment. And so that's all microbes. It's viruses, fungi, bacteria, archaea, protists, and all of their genetic components. And it's any defined environment. So it's any natural ecosystem. It's different parts of the body. It's other organisms. It's, you know, a, a pond has a, as a microbiome. And so it just depends on how you define that environment. And humans have many microbiomes. They, the gut microbiome is the most densely populated and the most studied at this point, but every inch of us has a unique composition of microbes. So the skin has its own microbiome and the vaginal microbiome is incredibly important and oral, nasal, feet, ear, eyes, the inside of your elbow. <laughs> Everything has its own unique microbiome. And so to when we put that frame around it, as opposed to just, you know, how do we work with our, our gut microbiome, 
it that's what makes me excited about the broad functionalities of mucus um and you know all of these things change also via environmental factors. So, you know, the, the gut microbiome or microbiomes of your body change depending on what you put in and on your body and the hormones that you have that day and your circadian rhythm and whether you had stress, you know, that day. Um, and so all organisms and ecosystems have, have microbiomes and we increasingly find that the microbes and microbial composition of these different ecosystems have incredibly diverse and important impacts on the health of the ecosystem. And an example of that, do you know, to come back to the gut microbiome, um, the gut microbiome is increasingly being classified as an organ, but it's always shifting and interacting with all of the other organ systems within our body which I find really interesting because so we have this microbial and chemical composition that's constantly in flux. It's made up of microbes that are transient and have very short lifetimes. So it's a little bit like the, you know, the, the ship of Theseus, where it's like, is it the same, is it the same thing if you change everything within it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also that it's influencing and influenced by all of the other components of our bodily mm-hmm. system. And so while we're, more and more trying to study it and define what this is and even you know classify it as an organ, it really just defies a specific neat definition of an organ and even what it means to be a single organism. Uh, it really prompts ourselves to think of ourselves as a prompts us to think of ourselves as a system, an ecosystem, you know, a holobiont. Um, and again, I think it's really interesting that microbiomes are so intensely interconnected with everything else. Even that we say, oh, this is my microbiome and I'm the ecosystem, we're constantly trading microbes with the world around us through our breath and fecal material. And, you know, so if you define that as the larger, you know, we're part of that larger ecosystem as well. Um, And so we have this multi-directional interaction going on in the ecosystem in really important ways based on the microbes that we have. Again, coming back to the gut as this really important key from that we have a two-way communication and molecular transport with all of our other organ systems. So the gut impacts the liver and the liver impacts the gut. And the same for the brain. We have the gut-brain axis, the gut-kidneys axis, the gut-skin axis. Um, And just containing trillions of microorganisms that provide really critical functions to human health. And so if we can gain a better understanding of the microbiome, the impact on the microbiome of drugs or, or diets or environmental factors, we have a much better understanding of the mm-hmm. impact on the entire system. And again, prompts us to think of self differently. We're more of a holobiont, which is an assemblage of our of the host, which is our self, with the many organisms and microorganisms that live in and on us and together function as a discrete ecological unit. So I describe this as, you know, as the human body because it's something that it, that we base this knowledge on, but that concept translates to all other ecosystems with their own microbiomes as well. Um, you know, made up made up of this assemblage of very important micro, you know, microbes that that help to create the larger ecosystem as a whole and depict how it um, how it interacts with the larger ecosystems that it's part of. I love that in-depth definition. And I also, I wonder, I was thinking when you were talking how this could lead to um, ego death in in some sense, right? Like, (laughs) what am I? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I I hope that some listeners kind of get to reflect on that. Like we are 
this collection of beautiful, amazing organisms. And there are so many organisms that make us up. And then if you think about it also on a larger scale to maybe cause some more ego death and just like an awareness of the connectedness, I think of these systems and us and our environment, but you have earth as a whole, and then you have continents and ecosystems that are, you know, different areas of a continent considered a biome. Mm-hmm. And then you have ecosystems and regions as part of that biome. Mm-hmm. And then you have organisms that live in those ecosystems like humans, but other organisms um, that are consisting of many of these microbiomes. <laughs> and it's you can just go smaller and smaller and smaller and bigger and bigger and bigger as part of these nested systems. And that's just so cool to think about. Absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite tools to to use when, you know, living curiously. And I think we'll dig into that a little bit deeper, but but the zooming in and zooming out and working in a lab for a long time and using a microscope, but then also every time I'm out in nature, you know, I love to use binoculars and telescopes. And mm-hmm. I, I find that thinking about things in that way. And like you said, you know, what are the smaller and smaller systems that make us up and what are the the larger and larger systems that we are part of? And enables me, I feel, to get out of that myopic human-centric view of, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the scale and we're in this world at the scope, but all of the, there's so many more interesting things happening when we're able to to zoom in a little bit or zoom out and think about what, what that all functions within. Yeah. There's, there's so much to explore. And so, why is the microbiome important or like, why is it cool? Why should we care about it? Oh man. Um, (laughs) uh, Why is it not? You know, I think (laughs) um, this, this field is growing so much and I appreciate just being in a field that is expanding so quickly and we gain more and more knowledge every day. But I think just the microbiome it, it influences everything about our physiology. You know, it's our gut microbiome influences our cravings and our emotions and our feelings and you know, the function of all of our other, the health of all of our other, um, you know, systems and, and organs. And I think that it's important in helping us to just get perspective um, and, and to understand this other component of our health that we were totally had no idea about for so long, you know, or, and we still, even now we kind of think, oh, well, it's just some microbes, but we're, it's helping us to produce nutrients and to digest our food and, and to break down things in the environment that we have no ability to do on our own. And so it's giving us this extra layer of functionality that us, that we as, you know, as humans and mammals and with our, with our eukaryotic cells are not able to do. And so it's absolutely crucial that we live in symbiosis uh, with these organisms and and they help us to interact and interface with the world around us and also protect us from the world around us. Having all these beneficial microbes on our skin and in our gut, um, it trains our immune system to know, okay, here's what you react to and here's what you shouldn't, here's what you should be tolerant to. And um, so I think the more that we learn about the microbes that make us up, the, the more that we know that we don't know about our own health. And I I love that concept of it. This actually reminded me of something that I heard about a few years ago. And I'm curious if you have anything to add to this, or I don't really have a question around it, but it just came to my mind that, um, first of all, it started with a book that I read called Darwin's Blind Spot, which is an incredible Mm -hmm. book. Um, Highly recommend it for you and everyone listening. 
but also led me to Lynn Margulis. I'm curious if you're familiar with her work and this idea of like endosymbiosis. Yeah. I, I'm not well versed enough to like fully explain it. Um, and I didn't expect to dive into it today. So feel free to be like, I'd rather not dive into that. Um, but I think it is kind of related and this idea that, you know, the, the example that I've heard is that, you know, the eukaryotic cell wouldn't be what it is today without kind of absorbing a bacteria that now serves as the mitochondria, or the powerhouse. Um, and this idea of that we, and there's so much of evolution that we don't understand. And the, again, this idea of like the curiosity, the unknowns, even these very crucial components to a lot of life on earth um, included symbiosis and this idea of like mutually beneficial um, behaviors and traits over time. So uh, just an invitation if there's thoughts or uh, feelings on that topic. Yeah. Oh yeah. I really love Lynn Margulis's work and that concept of endosymbiosis, which is just the concept that like you referenced at some point in history, there was a bacterial cell and a eukaryotic cell or, or, kind of a, it could have been an ancestor of a eukaryotic cell mm -hmm. that endosymbiosed and so took in this bacteria that was creating energy for it. And it kind of, I like to think of it like it was so beneficial that they lived happily ever after. You mm -hmm. know, <laughs> it's like, so this bacteria was able to um, provide functionalities that the eukaryotic cell was not able to. And the same also for chloroplasts within um within plant cells, mm -hmm. which was an early, I think, um, um, algae, algae cell. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to blank on what right. that was, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, just this idea that throughout evolution, you know, there, there's these different components that are separate within the environment and, and they have complementary but very useful functionalities that they say, Hey, I, you know, we, I guess they're not functionally, they're not saying, Hey, come over here. I need that. But you know, in, in the end, it turns out that it's like a one plus one equals three. And it's just so good for each of them that they, they carry on through evolution with that, um, with that basis. And yeah, I, I really enjoy that. And, and I, I'm glad you brought it up. It's an interesting parallel to what we have done. Like our, do we have an endosymbiosis of microbes in our gut? that is, you know, living, allowing us to live symbiotically and uh, allowing, you know, creating new structures that an, enable, enable two different organisms to live close to each other, but just, you know, in just the right closeness. And that's part of what mucus is as well, is this important boundary layer that enables microbes to be uh, close to our cells, but not, not quite in them or not quite invading them. And, and that's very important. Yeah, this is a great segue to mucus because I'm super curious to hear more about what makes up mucus and why it's um, why it is what it is. Yeah, so mucus is a really, I mean, broadly, it's the viscous substance secreted by cells and mucus membranes, which you know we we all know that and can very much identify with okay, mucus on our mucus membranes. Um, and it's made up of 95% water, but then also proteins and salts, lipids and cell, cell debris. And the, pro the core protein in it is called a mucin protein, and it gives it a lot of its functionality because it's this large branched protein that is covered in O-linked glycans or large sugar molecules. And there's hundreds and hundreds of there. So it looks like a, a bottle brush. They call it a bottle brush protein. And it's, uh, it's excreted by goblet cells in our mucous membranes. And as they 
kind of unfold. They, they start taking up the water and they, so the, the mucin proteins, the oligoglycans on this mucin protein, they covalently interact with each other. So because of the different charges, they will stick to each other and create this 3D network hydrogel, which enables it to hold large amounts of water in its structure. And that structure gives rise to many of the interesting functions that we take advantage of or biological organisms take advantage of. So it has a moisture control function and uh, along our different boundary layers, it has a lubricating function and, and physical protection against shear forces. It can also be adhesive on the other side and uh, due to this network interactions of the mucins causing them to stick together. It's good for transportation of substances and then also of the organisms themselves. It creates a selective porous filtration barrier. It has immunological features because of its interaction with our immune cells and different. it holds different antimicrobial compounds and antibodies. It enhances sensory perception by holding molecules against our sensory organs and uh, playing in interplaying in cell signaling. It provides a, a physical and chemical protective layer and has modifiable rheological properties. So if you change the pressure or the composition or the pH, it changes the viscoelastic properties of it as a material. And then, you know, most importantly for my interest is it's, it supports microbial ecosystems in really complex ways. So it's a, it's a habitat, it's a space for microbes to live within, but then it also is a nutrient source. It can selectively inhibit pathogens while nurturing beneficial microbes. And so it's this amazing material that we have yeah. under or in our noses that, <laughs> that uh, we usually just ignore. You know, we think about, oh, it's just snot. And so as I get into biomimicry and, and approach the world with wonder, it's, it's finding the amazement in these little innocuous things like mucus that we don't mm -hmm. think about um, that has all these incredible functionalities. And so if we just learn to look at it deeper, we can think about how to translate those into very useful applications. The way that I've heard about and then kind of started to explore mucus is this idea that it's not quite a liquid and not quite a solid. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's hydrogel and hydrogels themselves, they show up in all these different places in nature and have a lot of functionalities that we're learning to capture for things like biomedical applications. But yeah, it's, it's like solid water. <laughs> That's so cool. And it's, I feel like it's everywhere and we don't think about it very often. Oh yeah. I mean, it's found in all kingdoms life, kingdoms of life. And it, and it also enables interaction between those kingdoms when the symbiosis, which I find very yeah. interesting, it's in almost all animals and it's really ancient. So it was found in some of the earliest multicellular organisms. I can definitely see how it'd be such a crucial part to life and everything, reproduction, eating. Yeah. <laughs> Every component of, of life. And so I think maybe a, a good way to explain this further is have you share an example of mucus? Like what's your favorite, we say in biomimicry, champion organism um, that has mucus and like, what is, how does it work? Yeah. I mean, I think 
I I appreciate it as a, a as a material because or I, I appreciate its presence in humans because it's something that we can really relate to. You know, you can look at all these these mucous membranes, think about oh, well, my mouth is covered in mucus, and my nose, mm-hmm. and you know, the intestinal tract, and your eyes, and all of that. And so I think that while I won't call humans the the you know champion organism of it, I think that it's really interesting for something that we have first person experience with. And so to be able to kind of mess mm-hmm. with it and think about it um, is, is very interesting. And, you know, also something that we ignore. And, but I, I think one of my favorite um, examples of an organism that uses mucus is coral. And actually mm-hmm. corals, modern day corals are part of the phylum uh, Cnidaria, and which also includes comb jellies and, and they are thought to be where, mucus actually um, evolved from over 500 million years ago. And so corals now, or current day corals, they are another example of a holobiont, which again is that assemblage of the host and other species living on and in it, which form a discrete ecological unit. And so it's the coral host, which is an animal, plus their endosymbiotic algae, uh, plus the microbes, so viruses, fungi, bacteria, archaea that live on them. Um, I also just love that they're animal plus plant plus mineral plus microbe <laughs> all together, right? And this thing that we often just think of as, no, it's a it's an undersea rock. I don't know. Um, so corals are covered in mucus and they're also a good example of the kind of modifiable properties of mucus because they can produce strings or webs or sheets or different kind of fluid materials based on its functionality for, for the coral. And Coral's early ancestors evolved it probably as a cleaning or a feeding mechanism or, or both because it's sticky, um, but then also can be released into the water. So it's able to trap food or particles and then using ciliary clearance are able to transfer that either into the mouth you know, with food or um, off, of, off of the body. And so it has the, that dual functionality, but then also provides a protective barrier to contaminants, um, to changing water chemistry, to the shear forces around it, or, you know, bumping into by other organisms or attacked by other organisms. And then it also provides, it's a really important food source for the other organisms or microorganisms within the reef. And in that way contributes to nutrient cycling within the ecosystem. Um, And importantly, as in humans, it's this crucial boundary layer to that holds the microorganisms within proximity, enabling that symbiosis. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because I do, I think corals are so cool. And I, I was one of those people that was like, it's an underground rock. Yep. <laughs> and then you look closer and you're like, oh, they all reproduce at the same time. And there's video, like, I think when I first heard about this years ago, it was through Blue Planet, mm-hmm. that incredible footage they have of corals um, growing and then re- reproducing and, and releasing um, sperm spores at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah. And it was so cool to see like a time lapse of the polyps in the coral grow and contract and grow and contract. And it was just mind blowing. So folks should watch blue planet. <laughs> yeah, I totally um, agree. And yeah, this kind of brings me back to the the point of it, it gets me thinking is mucus in the biological world complicated to the point that we're having trouble mimicking it. Like when we think about using mucus or being inspired by mucus for biomimicry, and I'm jumping a little ahead here just because it came to top of mind. Do, do we, are we able to mimic mucus or is it like this kind of complex ethereal thing that's like too good to be true? 
That's, I mean, it's a great question. And um, one of the labs that I think is doing really interesting, innovative work is Dr. Ribic, Katarina Ribic, um, and her lab at MIT. And she has really done a lot to elucidate the, the functions of mucus. And, and one of them is actually a, a tuning, a microbial tuning effect. So the, the ligands and compounds within mucus cause bacteria or microorganisms to be less virulent. Um, and so it has all of these really interesting features that because it able, is able to um, you know, contain other antibodies and, and compounds within it that have functionality, but then also the structure. And, and I would say that the inherent diversity of that native mucus molecules are the challenge to mimic because human mm. processes are, um, you know, kind of rote. You, so you do this and it adds this length of glycan molecule to it and, and, her lab is working to make synthetic mucin molecules that are complex and very functional. But at this point, it's expensive to go through those processes. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to, to mimic the uh, inherent diversity, like I said, of those glycan chains, because they're different lengths, they're in different places, whereas the processes that we're putting together, from my understanding, are you know, very standardized. And you put it here with this length of, of molecule. And so I think that it's something that is deceptively simple um, and in a way that we haven't quite been able to uh, mimic to the point of commercialization yet. And it's often the case, I do feel like there's a few examples of this in the biological, I mean, many examples of this, where there's something so simple and elegant and uh, seemingly simple, but not really, <laughs> you know, it's had a lot of time <laughs> to refine these designs and its overall composition yet still has multiple functions, many functions with this one simple, elegant solution. And I, I love that about biomimicry too, like jumping back into this idea of like the curiosity, because you can approach it from so many different angles and we still might have a hard time, you know, learning from those strategies and translating them, not just using them as in biotilization, like not just taking the mucus from an organism and using it or, you know, making more of it um, with bacteria or whatever we're using to make it, which would be more bioassistance, but actually, yeah, learning from the chemical composition or the processes and making our own version of it. And I think mm -hmm. that can be, like you said, deceptively simple. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of biomimicry products right now. People are inspired by something in nature they go to mimic it and they're like, oh, we don't have the technology for this yet, which is so ironic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's something that is like a, a, a throwaway product, essentially, you know, it, it's made all the time in all of the mucous membranes and all of the organisms. And it's something that we really can't even, be, we've just begun to understand what it's actually doing in the complexity. You know, we... It, we just keep finding new layers. Like I said, the the biological tuning component of it, and just that it, it interacts with our um, it interacts and allows microbes to interact with our immune system in really specific ways. And and yeah, I think the more that we get deeper into wonder and and curiosity about around the world of the things around us, we realize that actually there are incredibly complex processes going on that we did not expect. Yeah, it's beautiful and humbling. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So beyond the MIT lab, are there, do you know of any like companies or 
folks doing this and learning from mucus or even like using mucus in more of like a biotech sense um, that are kind of inspired by mucus membranes and functionality of mucus? Yeah. I mean, I was looking around. I haven't seen anybody that is actually commercializing this, but there is a ton of laboratory research that it's happening that is coming out all the time. And so some of the ones that I could find is the Jagoda lab at Lehigh University are developing a reversible super glue inspired by snail mucus. Um, at the Mooney lab in Harvard, they published about a strong yet flexible surgical glue based on slug mucus that is able to stick to wet tissues. Um, and many others reporting development of mucus inspired dynamic hydrogels, um, uh, immune modulating mucin hydrogels, solutions for deca- decontaminating nano waste inspired by jellyfish mucus, um, you know, organogels that provide a material for retention of volatile compounds and lubricants that can block viruses. So I'll say that there's definitely a lot of interest, um, but I, I haven't seen anybody take it to the next step of translation yet. Yeah. And it is, it's frustrating. And I've talked about this with folks because I do think there's this gap between people who are doing the research and excited about the strategies and the biological functionality and then the ability to take it to the next step. So I do in some sense feel like we might be at a threshold for Mm -hmm. bio-inspired design and biomimicry. Um, And there are, there is more interest and there are more potential funders and programs for that. So yeah, maybe maybe we'll see that expand in the next few years. Do you feel like the same, like that we're at this kind of precipice and the next generation might see a lot more of mucus-inspired technology? Yeah, I mean, when we look at the, the long list of functionalities that mucus has and start thinking about the places that we need those solutions, um, I, I think that we'll, as, as the growth of bio-inspired technologies, I think that this will be another interesting space because, you know, when you think about the solutions that things modeled or the, the features that solutions modeled after mucus may have, I mean, they're non-toxic and flexible yet stiff, like we talked about. Um, they have modifiable properties, they're biocompatible, antimicrobial, um, immunologically active, and you know, kind of create a nurturing ecosystem for, for microbes. And those are things that we need in a lot of different areas. So, you know, some of the things that I have been thinking about, uh, especially in the, the microbial interface uh, area are you know, could we have mucin contact lenses, for example, or antimicrobial wound dressings or enhanced biosensors or selective filtration or tunable microbial drug delivery methods or, um, you know, even going to, to soil cohesion amendments. So I really think that there's a lot of areas that we can start translating this. And and I think that the solution is going to be in the biomimicry because, uh, you know, when we start to actually look at, well, what is it like to even just like Dr. Ribic is doing just the, to create those proteins and translate them and try to capture those functionalities, even that is, is challenging. And so, okay, well, how do we zoom out? What do we use? How do we use functional hydrogels, you know, and how do we, how do we just obtain those modifiable rheological properties? So if we can start capturing just parts of it and translating it, I think that there's a lot of potential there for sure. Yeah, I think starting in our design world with just one function is often challenging enough, which is why it's, yeah, just so deeply humbling to look to nature and see one simple design that has, you know, 20, 30 functions. Um, It's really cool. And also like, oh, we're 
a ways off from that still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we could make it more simple as well. You know, this is part of the kind of zooming in, zooming out part of it is like, okay, well, what, what if we could just create applications that stimulate more mucus, <laughs> you right. know, and, and for human health, what could we do around that? What could we uh, create that are mucus inspired, but generally just hold specific microbes while blocking others, even that as a very, like an isolated functionality has a lot of potential there. Um, could we, you know, could we mimic mucus to enable extended extended release drug delivery systems or mechanisms for microbes? And, and so uh, I think just looking at that those different components will be able to uh, capture in individual parts. I'm hopeful. I think, I, too. I think there's so many opportunities here. I mean, in, in all of biomimicry, but it's just fascinating to host these conversations and hear folks who are applying it in radically different fields. It is, yeah, it's really hopeful. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I want to actually return a little bit to some of the the other organisms, you know, aside from humans and corals, because I just really want to emphasize that like different animals use mucus in all of these different amazing ways. And so I, I've kind of been referencing it as, oh, and material with these functionalities. But, you know, for example, the hagfish, which is like mm -hmm. a, a really key organism that we think about for mucus, they use it for defense and escape. They just provide, you know, produce copious amounts of this, uh, uh, of mucus when they want to escape from the, something that's attacking them. Or velvet worms, which squirt mucus from their face to create a, a net to trap prey or parrotfish, which create this anti-parasitic mucus bubble when they sleep uh, to mask their scent and to keep parasites from, from you know, getting in. Or worms that secrete mucus and create soil structure and fish that use mucus membranes to reduce the drag of the water around them. And so, you know, it's another thing when you start looking at not just what could it be functional for humans, but what what is it functional for all of the other organisms on planet Earth? And and okay, well, well could we use a, a mucus defense and escape mechanism? You know, mm -hmm. like it just it just keeps going. I think immediately to that photo of I don't know what was it a meme? Was it a real photo? There was a photo I saw circulating the internet a couple of years ago with hagfish that were being transported somewhere or I forget yeah. what, but it was like this truck that had gotten in a car crash that was full of hagfish. And there was just like probably a thousand gallons of slime. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're just absolutely unreal amounts of, of mucus, you know, that they're producing, which is just so comical also when we think about, well, one hagfish can make all of this and we're struggling to make milligrams of it in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> Nature's so cool. Yeah. Always and we, we, we talked about this a little bit, but I want to dive into kind of your own curiosity around this and why you think curiosity is so crucial to biomimicry. Like how do, not necessarily how do folks get and build that curiosity, but what, what has been a pathway to that curiosity for you? Just, just like kind of highlight it for other folks. Yeah, I think, you know, getting into biomimicry from the biotechnology space or with a, an adjacent but not really the same set of knowledge, um, I think just showing up in it with the beginner's mindset and the value of that and the value of curiosity-based learning or just living curiously, you know, it allows you to be really present with the world around you and with the, the just always asking questions. And it enables better critical thinking, I think, and more out-of-the-box thinking but also just generates a motivation to for lifelong learning, which I think is very important. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, someone coming into different spaces a lot, I've, I've just studied a lot of different you know, areas of research and coming into it and saying, okay, I know I don't know what's going on here, but 
I'm here to show up or to show up and, and learn, you know, to show up and figure out what is going and just tap into that curiosity as a flow state, you know, and then just it, it opens it up to a lot more collaboration and, and discovering also what your mind's own functions are. When you start realizing, wow, I didn't realize I was curious about that. Like, okay, mm-hmm. my mind likes to learn about those things or likes to think in that way. Um, and again, just staying engaged with, with the natural world around us. And um, just again, with the, the beginner's mindset as well, enabling that cross-disciplinary study of overlaying the knowledge you already have, whatever it may be from whatever field and coming into something else and saying, well, there's value to be learned there. And kind of the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so by showing up and, and throwing up, showing up into innovation through curiosity enables you to question the status quo and, and, um, look at natural systems with new eyes. And, and I think that's a very important part of biomimicry is like they say, you know, um, quiet your, um, oh, what is it? Quiet your cleverness. Yeah. <laughs> and so showing up and saying, you know, it's okay that I don't know here because that's actually a really key part of the learning process. Um, and, and that's great for new fields, but then also older fields, you know, biomimicry obviously is brand new and bio microbiology and our microbiome is, is pretty new as well. But if you're coming into, you know, other fields and say rejuvenating old ideas through a new lens and, and getting outside of that silo of specialization. So I really think of myself as a generalist, you know, I, I, I'm not deeply, deeply um, invested in one specific line of learning. I like to learn a little bit about a lot of things and then see how they all interact and work together and how we can collaborate with people that are learning very in depth. You know, if I go in and want to study, okay, how do we create a, a microbial solution based on mucin or, you know, on mucus, I'm going to go to that person with a PhD in mucus you know, mm-hmm. functionality. And then I'm going to cross collaborate with someone who has a PhD in, you know, in microbiology and, being able to wield those collaborations and the brain power of many different smart people, I think is really key to creating new cross-functional solutions. I totally agree. I'm, I'm such a generalist too. And I've found that being a generalist has enabled me, you know, by asking those questions or being curious and thinking through things I might not otherwise think through. Mm -hmm. I've asked questions that lead me to, you know, other people, other ideas, this deeper sense of um, creating and like this wouldn't have even come up if I wasn't asking these questions sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then bringing in the people that do have that experience and the, whether that be scientific or, you know, traditional ecological knowledge or whatever it may be um, art design and and bring those folks together. That has been like one of the, the most joyous parts of biomimicry. And I, I feel like a lot of other disciplines might have that kind of approach in some other sense, but biomimicry has been this really powerful field because of that for me, like this curiosity about what, you know, whether it starts at nature um, or a design idea, and then you start asking questions that lead you to more questions that lead you to, to a a whole different field potentially. And I think that's, yeah, it's just by backing up and appreciating that it is all connected and there's a lot more connections there than we realize. 
Absolutely. I think that there's so much empowerment for change there as well, which is something that Mm -hmm. is absolutely needed for, you know, how do we make solutions in our climate future and and all of that. But I think that everyone, regardless of their expertise, can contribute to solving these challenges and bringing their knowledge to the table. Um, And just showing up and asking questions has a lot of value because, you know, even people that have been in the field for a really long time, maybe there's questions that they asked early on, but, you know, maybe the information has changed. That's the, the key to science is it's constant shifting. And so to be able to um, bring in people of all walks of life and all areas of expertise uh, to empower solutions, I think is a great value of biomimicry. So, so true. Erin, what excites you or is bringing you joy right now? What excites me? Um, I think... Beyond mucus. (laughs) Beyond mucus. Um, Just really the power of microbes. I think that you know, I'm, I'm getting involved in more and more projects that are looking more deeply at things like extremophile bacteria and finding they have incredible powers to do things like degrade plastics and, you know, to sequester carbon and, and looking at, um, I think that just there's immense potential and value in these little microscopic organisms that are all around us that are you know, arguably ruling this planet and we weren't aware of until just you know, relatively recently in, in humanity. And so um, it's it's giving me a lot of hope to think that we can collaborate with these little microbes and, and create a lot of um, solutions to the problems that we are creating. Yeah, I love that. The power of zooming in and zooming out. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me today, Erin. This has been really wonderful. Thanks, you too. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks for leaving reviews, ratings, and sharing with friends and family. I will leave you with probably my favorite poem ever by Mary Oliver, which reminds me of fall. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things.